Welcome back to Endless Vital Activity, conversations to inspire radical action. I'm David Johnston, founder of Accept and Proceed, and at AMP we believe the cross-pollination of minds and ideas is vital, and that we can't find solutions in isolation. This season, our theme is Rethinking Systems. Throughout this series, we will reset our minds and preconceptions of concepts we thought we knew and understood. We will speak with Olympic athletes, entrepreneurs, architects and philosophers to rethink what we thought we knew about women's health, metasystems, biomimicry and time. With new perspectives, we can reimagine our world. Michael, welcome to Endless Vital Activity. You're the third architect in this podcast, all from varying backgrounds and focuses, but the first and only architect for this season. In the past, we've spoken to Julia Watson, who's written a book called Low Tech. You may have heard of um, a, a remarkable piece of work, uh, as is your remarkable piece of work, Flourish. And we've also spoken to Liam Young on everything from um, kind of radical indigenism uh, to dystopias. Liam really focuses on the future and where cities may be going. Today, we're here to unpack a very different kind of architectural discussion, biomimicry, this is a topic I'm incredibly excited about because it's at the intersection of our built environments with our natural environment. So let's start zoomed in with a definition. What's your understanding of biomimicry? Can you give us a bit of history? Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, thanks for involving me. And, and also, I'd like to acknowledge my co-author, Sarah Ichioka. So the, the book that I just published Flourish was written with Sarah. So equal credit to her for a lot of the things I'm going to be saying today. So biomimicry, well, I'd like to start with a kind of big picture view because as I see it, the challenge that's increasingly coming into focus now is that humanity needs to integrate everything we do into the web of life that supports us. And that means that as designers, we need to develop a broader understanding of planetary systems, understanding models like Gaia theory and, and seeing how the planet is a complex set of nested systems. And we can actually learn a lot from how that system works to help us redesign human-made systems. So, for instance, you know, if we look at the materials that are used in biology, Something like 96% of all living matter uh, is made from just four elements, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen. And yet, in the stuff that we make, we use every element of the periodic table, including some that are, frankly, <laughs> are crazy to be using. You know, it would be much better to, to leave them. Um, and so... Um, we can we can learn from that limited and safe subset of the periodic table that, that biology uses. And this is something that Janine Benius has, has championed a lot in her um, book, uh, Biomimicry. And then we can also learn from biology how to assemble those materials in the, in the right ways. And, uh, you know, there's a huge difference between conventional human technology and and the way that things are assembled in biology and if we can get closer to the way the things are assembled in biology then that will be a real breakthrough in organizing and maintaining all those resources within closed loop systems because ultimately that's what we have to get to as well we have to steward all resources within closed closed loop systems so that we design out the whole idea of waste Thank you. That's wonderful um, as an overview. I'm really interested, actually, in how you met your co-author, Sarah. So I met Sarah back in, ooh, it was like 2007. Um, Sarah was involved in organizing the London Festival of Architecture and came to one of my talks um, and said some very nice things about it. And then we started meeting up on a regular basis to share ideas. Um, and by that point, she'd been um, appointed as head of the Architecture Foundation in London, and she actually commissioned Exploration to put on the first solo um, exhibition of our work. And then in um, 2018, when we met up, which was just after the IPCC report had come out, the October 2018 version, we found that we were in a, a very similar place um, in terms of our thinking, um, uh, realizing that 30 years of sustainable design had not got us anywhere near to where we need to be and that we needed to do some dramatic rethinking. And um, that was really where the, the book started. And, and it was around that time that um, Architects Declare was initiated as well. Um, and, and both 
both of those had their starting points um, quite well rooted within the thinking of Donella Meadows, the, the systems thinker, who argued that the, the best way to change a system is by changing the mindset or paradigm that drives how that system be, uh, behaves. And, and by paradigm, my understanding of that is, is that that's a, a broadly held idea shared across uh, large parts of society that influences to a large extent how that society behaves. And so the, the kind of major shift that we pinpointed was the shift from sustainable design and development towards regenerative design and development. And at that point, um, there was um, people were starting to talk more about regenerative design, but there wasn't a, a particularly clear understanding of what it meant. And so Sarah and I, in our book, Flourish, we set out to try and clarify what we think would be involved in that. And, and, and we've argued that, there, that we think there are five fundamental shifts necessary to make that transformation. And each of those is the basis of, of one of the chapters in the book. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a it's a remarkable piece of work. So congratulations to you and Sarah. And um, I'm devouring it at the moment. And I do want to get into those kind of five stages uh, later on in the conversation. I think um, the reason I ask is I'm increasingly meeting people that I feel are going to play an important role in in my path forward and humanity's path forward and actually looking for those moments of serendipity and looking for the energy between not just like-minded, you know, thinkers, but actually diverse thinkers that are different from your own is, is really part of all of our paths forward. And obviously our audience is very much kind of design sector. And I'd like to ask, you know, around biomimicry, can anybody design with biomimicry in mind, not just architects? You know, but can anyone borrow and apply the principles of biomimicry in their homes, works, or holistic behaviors? Uh, I, I think so, uh, um, to varying extents. And um, I mean, what we've what we've tried to do in Flourish is to to really set out a sort of deeper philosophy of, of biomimicry. So, biomimicry, there was quite a lot of hype about it, sort of ten years ago, and and that tended to focus on how certain products could be redesigned to deliver performance benefits. And you know all of that's valid, but in our book, we've tried to identify a kind of deeper basis for biomimicry. And um, I could expand on, on, on two areas perhaps now. One of those is connectivity and the other is symbiogenesis. So connectivity is a term coined by an Australian philosopher called Freya Matthews. And it refers to the way that living beings have evolved to not just maintain and increase their own existence, but to do so in a way that enhances the living systems of which they're a part. And that's very different to, to what's normal in modern in industrial systems. So that the dominant behavioral norm since the rise of agrarian societies has been to, to not engage with the connectivity of, of living systems. So, you know, when settler, settler agriculture came about, that tended to involve creating an exclusively human-centric space, you know, cleared of the ecosystems that once thrived there, and, and nature became largely a kind of backdrop rather than something in which humans could be constructively involved. Um, and, and so this tended to cultivate a mindset that produced buildings that were increasingly detached from the web of surrounding systems, first separated by a fence, then enclosed against the elements. And as technology uh, developed, built with materials that were increasingly transported from distant origins. So all of this tended to accentuate the separation from, from nature. And it was interesting to see some of your um, earlier guests on the podcast talk about this sort of dualistic separation. And I think it was Damon Gummo talk, talking about, uh, you know, the difference between the, the mindset that, say, um, Christopher Columbus um, had compared to a, a contemporary of his, um, Admiral Zheng He. So Columbus had a, a view of nature as something to be conquered. Um, whereas Admiral Zhang He saw humans as embedded within a web of systems because he subscribed to a Taoist view of, of life. And, and that was to a large extent, and this is really the argument of Jeremy Lent in his brilliant book, The Patterning Instinct, that was substantially what drove the difference in, in the behavior of, of those 
those two individuals. So Columbus unleashed the, the worst wave of exploitation and plundering, it, arguably in the history of humanity. Whereas Admiral Zhang He sought to integrate into um, the, the, the places that he visited and, and establish cooperative relationships and so on. And I just want to clarify that I know now an increasing number of people do not see themselves as separate from nature. And I, I imagine a lot of your listeners would say, well, yeah, I see humans as as part of the, the web of life, absolutely. But I think the key point is that our dominant economic systems do treat nature as something separate, as something to be plundered for, for resources. And, and if we continue with that framing, that is going to lead us in a, a really dark direction. Indeed, indeed. I so I I agree. I, I've had a realization, an increasing realization over the last few years, really, that the, the the biggest the biggest issue that we face is really a misunderstanding of who and what we are, you know, and and that we see ourselves as separate from nature, nature, which therefore allows us to pollute and cause violence to ourselves. You know, if we truly understood that we were part of an interconnected planet, then we just wouldn't pollute it in that way. If you understood that when you go up in an aeroplane and you're pumping carbon into the atmosphere, and I, I know that's necessary sometimes, but to actually see that it's self-harm mm. that you're that you're causing and, and having to weigh up and balance the, the, the actual fact of that, um, I, I think that's the biggest challenge that we face. And <clears throat> you're right, I'm sure that most of our listeners are somewhere on the journey of that realization but it's a continual reminder mm. that you need to bring yourself into the place of understanding because we've been brought into a world and work within systems that keep us very very separate from each other and a lot of the other interconnecting energies around us and i'd like to you know in the start of this conversation start to unpack the physical aspect of biomimicry before transitioning into the more philosophical elements of it. Okay, sure. Um, I was reminded, that, thank you for your for your reference points, and it's great to, to hear that you listened to Damon. I, I, that conversation was very powerful, and he is one of those people that I feel, you know, has kind of been connected, I've been connected to for, for something bigger in the future. Um, but equally, I, I think when I look back on my um, journey, I suppose, I remember going to the Gaudi Museum in Barcelona and seeing models of the Barcelona Gaudi Cathedral like hung upside down and that blew me away understanding that he was actually building something by dripping it into the sky effectively to create that incredible spectacle but really he was just playing with the forces of gravity you know and i personally play with the forces of gravity because i love hand balancing and i feel like i'm falling into the sky when i'm upside down um, and that really resonated with me and also when i started to understand the work of neri oxman which is all about material ecology you know, how, how does, does Neri's work uh, relate or differ to biomimicry? Yeah, so um, I'm a big fan of Neri Oxman's work, and, and I think she's been exploring some amazing stuff. Um, and, you know, I was, I was talking about um, learning from biology, how biology assembles materials in in, in, in many ways in in a more sophisticated manner and so neri oxman's explored some really fa fascinating ways of using biologically derived materials to to create extremely efficient and and beautiful bits of structure as well as exploring ideas of of kind of gradation of of material so using exactly the same material but in different ways to to produce different performance results so her chitin project, for instance, there are some parts of that that are quite thick and dense where it is creating structure, and then some bits that are really thin and diaphanous that let through the, the light, but it's all done with the same material. Uh, and the, the advantages of, of using a material like that is that at, at the end of that, that particular element's uh, useful life, it can be completely reintegrated into biological systems, you know, without any waste or, or pollution, um, or it can just be turned into something completely new. You know, you can redeploy those materials in a new way. And I suppose thinking about, about that, her work in biomimicry, and also something you mentioned earlier about the potential future that could be quite dark, 
And there are many different potential futures, as we know, and, and hopefully we're going to start to choose the one that we actually want. But it does lead me to a philosophical question about how to maintain integ- integrity within your work, which is something that we think a lot within our work as well at Accept and Recede. Can we respect nature as a source of inspiration, but not co-opt it and dominate it as, his, as has historically seemingly been the case? How do you build integrity into your work, I suppose, is the question. Mm. Yeah, uh, well, it's a really important point. And um, I think uh, there are quite a few dimensions to that. So so one is um, uh, having a, a starting point that is bio-inclusive as opposed to anthropocentric. And what I mean by that is rather than just focusing on humans, thinking about the, the whole um, web of, of life. And... Um, in some ways, you could look at the evolution of human consciousness as um, being towards a, a wider we. Um, you may well be familiar with Brian Eno's assertions about wanting to live in a, a big here and a, a long now. And you know, in some ways, regenerative design is about moving towards a bigger here, a longer now, and a wider we. And the wider we I'm referring to there is, is the way that we've evolved from an individual consciousness towards a a tribal consciousness and then um, a national consciousness and an international consciousness, a globalized one. And and ultimately what we need to do is cultivate a a widespread planetary consciousness that that acknowledges um, the interconnectedness of all life. And it's really encouraging to see that that shift is already underway. So um, planetary health that, that's a, an initiative that was launched by the Lancet magazine and the Rockefeller Foundation. And it's a significant move on from global health because global health um, is, you know, is a little bit like you know, a Ponzi scheme. We, we've achieved amazing increases in global health, but it's been at the expense of the health of the, the um, living systems that support us. Planetary health sees our health as inseparable from the health and well-being of of the living systems on which we depend and one of my hopes is, is that the pandemic will come to be seen as as the end of human exceptionalism you know the idea that somehow humans can exist outside the realms of physics and biology well it's complete nonsense you know we we can't separate ourselves from that and you know for those who want absolute scientific proof of these kind of things so that they're convinced that it's not just a sort of, um, I don't know, sort of hippie um, notion. Well, increasingly, science is pointing in this direction. So if you look at ourselves as humans, we're not as individual and isolated as was once uh, suggested by reductive Western science. So we know that our so-called human cells are outnumbered 10 to 1 by microbial cells and all of those are dependent on on the uh, the health of um, ecosystems outside of ourselves um, for water and oxygen and nutrients and so on so you know where are the boundaries of of the self it's looking far more blurred than was once contended yeah yeah, I, I love that big here and long now um, quote from Brian Eno, and he's had some, some some amazing pieces of thinking and words over the years. And in fact, I, I might cosmically order him to be a guest on um, the <laughs> podcast. Um, so there you go. There's the order been placed. Um, I loved his quote in, in Flourish as, as well around around dreaming and the capacity of humans to be able to dream. And I think that... Um, you know, that, that's a very important point. But for, first, step one for me is sort of understanding that you can break through some of the illusions that you've taken as firm reality. You know, time, which Brian Eno is referring to in Big Here and Long Now, in the way that we perceive it, at least, is very much a human construct. And what else? Our geographical borders. You know, you've probably noticed the the brown rain we've had over the last week. That's been kicked up from Sahara, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. It's like, wow, that the Sahara is connected to us. It doesn't see any borders. It doesn't stop at France or, you know, it doesn't see any of that. We are one interconnected planet, of course. And Money as well is is just a story, a very compelling story, but a story that we tell ourselves. And what will these things evolve into? And 
or, or what are the systems that we can replace them with is something that I think I'd love to, to unpick with you. But I suppose in doing that, I'd like to once again look at the the terminology and the language around biomimicry and, and why mimic um, when we could potentially become part of, you know, this idea that you could mimic for me suggests that you you might clone or, or co-opt or kind of take as inspiration, but try and adapt from rather than fall into nature's cycles. One of our previous guests I mentioned is Julia Watson and in her book, Low Tech, she um, she basically studies the TEK technology of indigenous communities. And one of her case studies is in North India, where um, an indigenous community basically grows trees and weaves them together as bridges. Have you seen this? Because yes. Mon- yes. yes, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with it. So for our listeners in monsoon season, the rise and fall of water levels is so dramatic that no man-made structure can really accommodate that sort of um, change, but by weaving together the trees, you know, indigenous communities understand that you can work with and really use nature's um, wisdom in order to be able to, you know, live within it in a in a much more um, in a, in a much more integrated way, I suppose. So, can is the is the term biomimicry correct, and or am I missing something? Is there something that can help us not mimic but fall in line with mm. nature? Yes, gosh, there's a lot in in what she what you just said there, David. Um, so let's <laughs> let's try and um, draw out some of those threads. Um, so uh, w- one of the things that Sarah and I um, make the case for in our book is that a, a really crucial question that any designer should ask themselves when they're approaching a new project is what solutions already exist in this place. And that would include the solutions developed by humans that have um, evolved to live in that space. And it would include the solutions that other non-human beings have developed and uh, adaptations that they have developed in that place. And ideally, we would look at those as part of the same thing. So not seeing those as dualistically separated, but seeing all of those as solutions that have evolved to suit that place. And coming on to the uh, um, the idea of the grown structures, I love the living bridges. They're, they're amazing. Um, and I I would describe that as being distinct from biomimicry. I'd call that bio-utilization. Whether biomimicry is, is the right term or not, I think time will tell. You know, it may be that ultimately we, we, we have a sort of overall um, name for this uh, this approach but i think um it's it's worth sort of teasing out um a bit more from this and the the current distinctions between them so so if we stick with the idea of a bridge and and let let's say you wanted to make a a long span bridge that would be suitable for a train say it'd be really challenging if not impossible to do that literally as a as a living a living structure Mm-hmm. And what biomimicry offers is is not just about direct mimicry. So it's for me, it's not at all about just copying shapes from nature. I'd call that biomorphic design. So biomimicry is about understanding principles from biology and using those to develop solutions. So for instance, with the bridge, there's a really important principle that we can learn from biological structures that, that's called hierarchy. And perhaps the, the best way to describe this is to, um, if, you, if you think of the, the Eiffel Tower, so that's got trusses within trusses within trusses. So that's three levels of hierarchy. And let's say you were trying to make a bridge, uh, you know, a really simple approach would be to just get a massive steel I-beam and put it from one side to the other. A more, a much more efficient approach would be to turn that into a truss where you separate the um, tension and the compression members. That's one level of hierarchy. The next level of hierarchy would be to turn each of the elements in that truss into a truss or a stranded cable. So then you've got trusses within trusses. And each time you add a level of hierarchy, you make that much more efficient. You're using much less material. And in biological structures, you can find examples of of five and sometimes even eight levels of hierarchy. In conventional human-made structures, it's very rare that you find examples going beyond one level of hierarchy. And yet in, in some of the projects that 
my office exploration has explored. We you know, we've shown how it'd be perfectly possible to achieve a factor 10 saving in resource use. So achieving the same results, but with a tenth of the physical resource input. And interestingly, often this involves more human input in terms of ingenuity and um, kind of uh, labor, I suppose. Um, and you know, for me, one of the one of the most rewarding things in life is is to to actually make things and to see how I can. Uh, I just find it a very creatively uh, rewarding thing to do. So, so I actually think that's an important shift. You know, the, in, the beginning of the industrial revolution, materials were abundant and uh, human resources were scarce. Now we've got the opposite. You know, we've got abundant human resources. Uh, and they they want meaningful things to do with their life, and we've got dwindling physical resources uses. So there's a lot to be said for a discipline that allows us more creative human input and far less physical resource input. And so that's that's what we can uh, learn from well, one example of what we could learn from biology. Uh, another would be let's say uh, still sticking with structures. Um, so instead of say a beam spanning um, across, you know, a floor area, uh, it's much more efficient if you turn that into an arch, and then far more efficient still if you kind of rotate that arch through 360 degrees and create a dome. So that that uses a fraction of the material to cover a certain space, and then you could learn from biology how to put those materials that make up that dome together in the right way. Um, so you could uh, incorporate what are called interfaces between the material bits of material. So rather than it just being a homogenous material, which is quite prone to cracking, you could learn from something like abalone shell that is made up of lots and lots of layers of calcium carbonate with a flexible protein. And so at a chemical level, that's almost identical to ordinary blackboard chalk. But because of those interfaces, it achieves 3,000 times the strength. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for putting those those threads out of out of uh, what I said. And I also have a couple of threads there. I think there was when I mentioned the Brian Eno quote about um, dreaming earlier, I noticed you had a reaction to that and I didn't want to miss it. Was there was there something that you wanted to say? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well spotted. Yeah. So Sarah and I love that quote. And I think it's is so useful because for me, there, there's not enough of a debate at the moment about how change happens. Uh, and in my realm of um, you know, architecture and engineering and so on, a lot of the discussion is is simply uh, revolving around carbon and you know how do we make zero carbon uh, possible and, and so on. And of course, that's important, but I don't think we're going to get to where we need to be by talking in that in that way it's it's just too mechanistic and um that brian eno quote was just a, a fantastic example of how change can happen it can it can start in the imagination and, and by articulating an idea or a dream it starts to become i'm kind of quoting well paraphrasing brian eno here um so when when you articulate an idea or a dream it starts to become true in people's minds because they start to compare reality to that dream. And, and that new reality starts to become a, a kind of invisible force that pulls change into to being. So all change, arguably, starts in the imagination. And by talking about it and then implementing it and, and learning from that and sharing it and repeating it and, and trying to do it better each time, that's one really important way in which we can make change happen. Yes, I love that. I love that. There's another quote from Albert Einstein, um, which is imagination is everything. It is the preview of life's coming attractions, which seems to speak into the same the same sentiment. And I suppose I think a lot about the creative process and where ideas come from. And I love where you were going with the the, the questioning of what solutions already exist in this place. And that could be, you know, a psychological place or a physical place. Um, and actually, what you were saying about the hierarchy often only being employed of one level, when in fact we could we could go to the power of ten. Why why is it that we don't tune into deeper levels of nature, Michael? Because 
is that laziness or is it, I, I mean, I would like to think we are nature. And of course, yeah. this is this is a debate, right? Are humans actually part of nature or are we some weird sort of tangent that took place and now hopefully we're going to come back into? And is there a way that we can kind of tune into more resonance to, to nature and, and more of a kind of innate, an innate understanding that we may have rather than a cognitive one? I, there was a, an interesting reference point that came up with Charles Eisenstein in my recent conversation with him around Sufi architecture, where they would sit in a space and really ask the land what should be there, that kind of sacred sacred sort of ceremonial process, which I absolutely love, just sitting quietly and asking what what wants to emerge seems like a much more powerful way to create, actually, but it requires us to get ourselves out of the way. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds fantastic, and uh, it, it's it's similar to to what uh, Freya Matthews talks about. Um, so she was the philosopher I mentioned earlier, and she she quotes an example from the the architect Bill McDonough, uh, who um, said that if you think if you just imagine that you were a hair gel manufacturer, you you should think about the river that that hair gel is going to end up in and ask what the river wants from the hair gel. Freya Matthews says that's along the right lines, but it doesn't go far enough. We should be asking, what does nature want us to want in the first place? And I'm sure there are some architects and designers who would react against that and feel like that's imposing limits and, you know, we expected to subsume ourselves into nature and I don't see it that way at all. It's about um, it creating a new relationship, which doesn't have to involve winners and losers at all. Um, and it's about fully, immer- fully immersing ourselves into a, a realm of endless depth and beauty. So I don't find it a, um, a, a, a cons- it's not a concern for me that it would be limiting at all, far from it. And um, in terms of... Um, Integration, and I'm partly picking up on your earlier question here. That that's quite a, um, a tricky one because um, you know you you could say that we're only going to fully integrate ourselves into um, nature by s- strictly using biological materials, and you know that that would exclude a lot of w- what we've got used to, you know, including the computers that we're we're currently using, and a, a, a less dogmatic approach would be that there are still going to we're still going to want to use certain a certain amount of metals and minerals and so on. But we could learn a lot from biology about how to assemble them in much more intelligent ways that use those resources more efficiently and allow those resources to remain within closed-loop cycles and, and strive as much as possible to resource, uh, to um, source the, the materials from the location it, itself. Uh, and so rather than thinking of national boundaries, thinking of bioregional boundaries. And, you know, again, there's a tension here that sometimes arises, which is is that people think, well, you know, if you're talking about hyper-localization, that, that sounds, you know, parochial and, and limiting. Well, it's not. I think that's an easy conundrum to solve because it just involves distinguishing between, between different types of resources. So distinguishing between intellectual resources and physical resources. And, and you know, the best hope of, of shaping a, a positive future and creating a, an ecological civilization, and I'm absolutely convinced that is possible, we could create a good quality of life for everyone on Earth within planetary limits. The best hope of doing that is by localizing our physical resource use and sharing, globalizing our intellectual resource use. So, for instance, Sarah and I talk about this in Flourish, um, you could take the example of bamboo. You know, there are species of bamboo in just about every uh, tropical and semi-tropical environment. Um, and so you could use the species of bamboo that's local to your area. It's an amazing material, incredibly strong, sequesters carbon than f- faster than any other plant, uh, I believe. Um, so you could use a local material, but then you could share knowledge about how to use that how to put it together in the most effective way. And and that's something that could be shared um, across uh, cultures and geographies. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for, for that. I, I first heard the phrase panpsychism or panpsychic 
um, a couple of years ago from a friend who's a poet. And it, it seemed to really make sense to me, the idea that everything is conscious, everything is conscious. And we come from a universe that apparently may have come from a single point originally. We origin originate from the same thing. Then why would we not just be a very heightened state of conscious in a conscious universe? I don't know. It opened up something for me. And in fact, what you're discussing around your kind of evolution from a, a very Western scientific perspective, which was Newtonian, I suppose, in the idea that you can only study that which you can see with your eye. It feels like we're really ushering in a new era where we are open to the different energies within the world. And whenever, even when you were speaking just a second ago, I kind of got a bit of a shiver, like a goosebumps. Like, what are goosebumps, really? I, I feel <laughs> when I hear great wisdom, I I kind of tune into it. I, I feel it within my body. And, and I might have just dismissed that a few years ago, but I think those are little triggers of... Mm. of what I should be paying my, you know, putting my attention on, because what other power do you really have than where you focus your attention? So when I hear great wisdom, as as I heard from you a second ago, I'm like, mm, like turns me on, like you know, turns me my my vibration up, um, yeah. my frequency up, and I'd like to know really how how low you go actually within your work in terms of what you can study and what you consider to be nature. So are you inspired by the quantum realm and the way that that works? And can that inform some of your work? Um, well, there's very little that I would rule out. Um, to, to some extent, it, it's been, uh, I guess, a, a little bit random. It, it has depended to some extent on the project opportunities that arise. So I, I tend not to knock on closed doors and, and try and um, find opportunities before they exist if you know what i mean um and, and that was one of the best bits of advice that i picked up from a podcast interview with kate rayworth she said she never locks uh, she never knocks on closed doors and um i realized that i i had spent quite a lot of the first 10 years of running exploration trying to knock on closed doors trying to create projects that that uh, for which the conditions weren't quite right um so i'm not too sure how to answer your question other than to say that I, I i don't really rule anything out and and i i have a kind of endless thirst for knowledge and i, I actively seek out knowledge and perspectives that challenges the the, the way i think and and in fact the, the name i chose for my company exploration it comes from a, a line of um T.S. Eliot's poetry, which you may be familiar with, which is, we, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And in some ways, that encapsulates the, the essence of a design process uh, for me. You know, going on a, a journey where you're not exactly sure where you're going to end up and embarking on that with... Uh, a, a diverse group of uh, collaborators um, and um, just exploring everything that, that occurs along the way that looks fascinating and then trying to integrate that into a cohesive whole. Um, and, and, it, it, and it does tend to be you know, cyclical. You, you often come back to your starting point, but it's never quite the same starting point because you've learned a lot along that journey. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you've got time to speak today because I've got much more that I want to get into with you. And I think that um, as we start to sort of zoom out in our perspective, I wanted to tell you about something uh, around our exploration within Accept and Proceed. And I suppose a few years ago, I realized that um, the reward for having a commercially successful entity was pretty shallow. You know, you can you can hit the numbers, but really it was always about the creative output of the studio and the culture that we built and all of the things that sat around just the kind of seemingly just upward arbitrary, you know, kind of trajectory of, of headcount and and income or revenue. And so I started to think about different ways to be able to organize our business. And I was quite inspired, actually, by my conversation with David Hyatt and also my experience of going to do lectures. And I went to Cardigan Bay in the west of Wales to David Hyatt's farm and hung out with these people and listened to really intense conversations. And I started to think, what is it about that location and David Hyatt's life that has enabled him to build such brilliant businesses and such 
brilliant culture and brands. And I started to think maybe it is actually the ecosystem of Cardigan Bay itself as a village community. You know, and what is the ingredients that makes a brilliant community? Is it the the library and the open spaces and the connection to nature and sea and, you know, the, the police station? Like what, what would it be to run a business if you were to apply the principles of a thriving community to to a business? So I started to think about, you know, different metaphors for the way that we could run a business. But in fact, it didn't work in terms of a thriving community because you can take those same ingredients, put them somewhere else and they just won't work. So um, I started to really think about the, the way that nature works, you know, and always bringing harmony and balance over time if it's left to its own devices. And we had created something called a living business plan, which we introduced um, 18 months ago. We trialed it for the first year, prototyped it. But in fact, the reason we went to Broughton Hall, as I mentioned at the start of this year, was a realization that you can't have a system like that top down. It has to really emerge from the group. So we co-defined our next 12 months um, with the, 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 you know, the 30 people in our team all together whilst immersed in nature in this beautiful location. So we're only kind of two or three months into the, the second version of the living bus- business plan, if you like. But I'd like to um, ask if you've got any other examples where people can really start to look around them, take inspiration from um, their experience and their journey or maybe yours and apply it to thinking radically differently about their their work or their companies. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I mentioned one earlier, which I, I um, forgot to elaborate on, which is symbiogenesis. And that that comes from Lynn Margulis, who is um, one half of the team that developed the Gaia theory uh, with James Lovelock. And symbiogenesis is, um, is distinct from symbiosis in, in the following way. Um, so symbiosis is about the way that um, two or more living species um, have evolved um, to cooperate for mutualistic benefits. Symbiogenesis uh, is is well. It was um, Lynn Margulis's findings that over time, symbiotic relationships result in new structures or, or practices coming into being that further enhance that symbiosis. And so, Sarah and I in um, our book. We, we look at what this would mean for the built environment. And, you know, the built environment is symbiogenesis, which is a term created by Lynn Margulis to describe the way in which new structures come into being out of long-term symbiosis. So Sarah and I have applied this idea in our book. And, and it's important to realize that the, the built environment is, to a large extent, a reflection of the way we see ourselves. And so suburban sprawl with lots of isolated buildings, in many ways, that's a manifestation of seeing ourselves as separate individuals in a kind of zero-sum game of survival of the fittest. And so the opposite to that would be symbiogenesis, where we live together in, in cohesive ways. And over time, more and more self-reinforcing structures would come into being that would further enhance that symbiosis. So I'm thinking particularly of models like the 15-minute city, uh, where uh, people can access everything they need within a 15-minute walk or cycle. Um, I'm thinking of models like um, eco-villages. We talked about, uh, we talk, Sarah and I talk about the LA eco-village, where you have a lot of shared uh, facilities so it could be, say, a, a massive extension, the idea of a library, so that it's not just about books, but it's also tools and toys and all sorts of equipment. And the advantage of this is that people don't need to own anywhere near as much stuff. They don't need as much storage in, in their, their, um, their flats. And it actually promotes social interaction. And examples like uh, Brighton One, um, which was developed by... Uh, by a regional and field and Clay Bradley Studios as a housing development in Brighton that, that demonstrates quite a lot of these ideas. It has phenomenal um, levels of social interaction and well-being. When you when they went back to study how people had actually changed the way they live, they uh, they they actually enjoyed a much higher degree of connectedness to the to their neighbors uh, they were living much more healthily many of them had, had given up their their cars and and, just, and finding that living a, a a simpler life with less stuff was actually massively improving 
their well-being. And uh, you know, some people talk about the, the hedonic treadmill, you know, the idea that we just we need to continually earn more so that we can own more. And the more we own, the more we feel we need to earn and, uh, and so on. And, and you know, it's become increasingly clear over the last few decades that, that that's not a path to happiness at all. And we can create a much better quality of life by adopting some of these ideas. Yes. Amen to that. Um, where, where do you think we're at right now? I mean, if, if it, the, the main narrative is that we're in a real mess and, yeah, you know, where do you think we're at in, in the process? You, it's lovely to hear that you feel positive and that we can do this and yeah. you, you kind of crescendo in the book in that way. Where are we at? Yeah. In the introduction, we describe a model uh, of complex systems. It's called the adaptive cycle model. And it, initially, it was developed as a way to understand ecosystems. And Holling and Gunderson, who, who initially created it, argued that ecosystems go through four stages. There's a growth stage, there's a consolidation stage, there's a release stage, and a reorganization stage. So as an example, if you have a bare patch of ground, you get um, early uh, pioneer plants, um, and then you get different waves of plants, all of which change the um, the environment and make it possible for other things to become established. That's the growth phase. And then it moves towards becoming a climax ecosystem. And in the UK, that would often be a, an oak forest. And in that consolidation phase, the system actually starts to become very resistant to change. So in the growth phase, it responds to change by adapting to it. In the consolidation phase, it responds to change by trying to resist it as much as possible. And it starts to become more and more fragile as a system. And an example of a release would be, say, a forest fire or, or an insect infestation, which can uh, you know, reduce that to ashes in, in a matter of hours and, and then it would go into a reorganization phase it might return to something similar or it might regrow as something quite different and what's interesting about this model is that other scientists and social scientists have started to apply this to human-made systems so for instance you could look at the 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 u.s car industry after the car was invented it went through a growth phase and then it went into a consolidation phase as a limited number of car companies started to dominate the field. A release phase was the 1970s oil crisis. The American car manufacturers lost a lot of market share to more efficient car manufacturers from, say, Japan. And it went into a reorganization phase. And in many ways, it returned to its old ways. Um, and if anything, a more consolidated phase. And so when the 2008 financial crisis happened, Obama just bailed them out, which went, meant it just returned business as usual what would have been much more courageous is to say sorry you're not you're no longer fit for purpose i'm going to uh, provide funding to a, a richer ecosystem of smaller more innovative car companies that are better able to innovate cars that are suited to our present needs and this this adaptive cycle model applies across different timescales as well so you could look at the whole industrial age of humankind and you could look at the first, say, 200 years as, as a growth phase, and then the last 50 years as the consolidation phase, the period in which neoliberal economics became more and more dominant, uh, the, the phase in, in which the media became more and more controlled by a limited number of media moguls. It's a phase in which uh, a small number of uh, Big companies got closer and closer to government and lobbied to resist changes in legislation. Um, and that's where we're at now, I think. We're at a very fragile, late consolidation stage where we actually have all the solutions we need, but it's very difficult to get them implemented because the, the system has become so incredibly resistant to change. And if you look at the absurdities in the UK at the moment, where the government has made it illegal to, for someone like me to go into a school and question the basis of capitalism. You know, there are some things that work well about capitalism. There are some things that are disastrous. Children need to know about that. And so they're also making it increasingly difficult to engage in peaceful protest. That, that, those are indications of a system that is desperate to maintain the status quo. 
And somehow we need to bring about a, a release phase. And this is something that my colleagues and I in Architects Declare have talked about quite a lot. And Sarah and I in the writing of our book, we've talked about a lot. And we think there are three essential things we need. We need to show that we've got the new solutions clearly articulated. We need to show that we've got the skills to deliver them. And we need to show that there's overwhelming public support for those. And that last bit is really challenging at the moment because the the media just doesn't seem interested in talking about this stuff. And it's, it seems almost impossible to have a sensible grown-up conversation about the future of humanity. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's desperate, really. Holly Walsh, the, the comedian, um, captures this fantastically when she said you know what does it say about us as a species that it seems impossible to have a big conversation about the future of humanity and yet when kim kardashian releases a new picture of her bare backside it nearly breaks the internet <laughs> yeah it, it is desperate it's desperate and you know seeing you know on page four um of a newspaper, you know, small print, you know, the existential crisis with we're heading to our doom as a kind of um, not the major story is it's insanity. It's total insanity. Uh, what I find heartening is what you described there around the fact that we do, in fact, with all that, though, live within mirage systems. You know, the bolstering of the financial crisis and the propping up of it means that it isn't it's a kind of zombie system. It's already dead. It just doesn't know it yet. It feels alive, but it's yes. not actually there. And I find that incredibly heartening, just uh, going about my day-to-day, realizing the things I see that just do not make any sense and, aren't and, actually there. And and when a newspaper as kind of august and centrist as, as the Financial Times runs a whole series of articles questioning uh, some of the flaws of, of capitalism, I think that that is a sign that we're edging towards a, a release phase yeah yeah i'd like to you mentioned architects declare there and can you tell us your stance on this and also what about designers declare and the collective power of all creatives in general actually yeah uh, so architects declare uh, that came about from uh, an, an initially rather gloomy um, pint in the pub with a, an old friend of mine steve tompkins just after the ipcc report came out we were concerned that there hadn't been much of a response from the architecture community, and and we actually misjudged it. That there was a, there was a lot more concern than we thought about at the time, or the, that we realised. And Steve and I were talking about where each of us had agency, and we were talking about Danella Meadows' ideas. And over the course of that evening, we hatched a plan to get all the UK winners of the Sterling Prize, that's the main architectural prize in the UK, uh, to, to make a joint declaration of action. And uh, Steve and someone called Caroline Cole did a lot of the kind of negotiations there. Um, Steve's firm had actually won the Sterling Prize, so he was well-placed to do that. And that was launched in, in May uh, 2019. And we we thought that we'd have to work really hard to get maybe 50 practices signed up so that we could then go to our institution, the Royal Institute of British Architects, and persuade them to declare. As it turned out, uh, 200 firms signed up in the first two days, and we've now got over 1,200 firms signed up to an 11-point declaration of action. And we made it as easy as possible for other people in other countries to set up their own versions. So it's now spread to 28 countries with over 7,000 companies signed up. And of course, it's not just about signing up, it's also about action. So the way we wrote the declaration points is very much rooted in this shift from sustainable to regenerative. We're trying to share knowledge as much as possible. And, and we see our mission as, as having two key strands, partly about getting our own house in order, and it's partly about trying to bring about larger scale systems change, trying to bring about the kind of changes that are very difficult to bring about at the scale of an individual project or company. But by using the collective momentum of all these signatory companies, it, it ought to be possible to bring about uh, systems change. Amazing. And I think part of the power that we hold as designers, um, there's not many disciplines where you you have the power to really bring to life the imagination in the way that you're able to through a visual, for example, or a concept. You know, I mm. think that there's certain pieces of architecture that I think will undoubtedly have been one because 
the original sketch, and I know this is there's a lot of debate around whether this is the right way to go about things, but actually the sketch is so compelling it has to exist. And we find this even when we pitch you know, work um, in, in for brand systems or experiences or retail concepts, you know, you, you really capture someone's in, uh, imagination and then it has a life of its own. It gives it that inertia. And I think that that idea that imagination is everything and it starts with you really beginning to think about the world in which you want to live and feeling that it's your right um, and that you have the agency, you know, to be able to start to put that out into the world as a designer or a creative or an artist, whatever it might be. Um, it, as, as we close down the conversation, um, I just want to pre-warn you what I'd like to do in each conversation is actually ask each guest for a rallying cry to our audience. So I'm just kind of planting that seed now and I'll ask you if you do have a rallying cry for our audience. Um, but before we go there, I'd like to really start thinking about the future, where we're going. I mean, what this looks like if it plays out in the best case scenario. Mm. Yeah, well, I I think there is a, a very real possibility that, that we could create an ecological civilization where we learn to integrate everything we do as humans into the web of life. Uh, I think there's a... a very real possibility that we could create fantastic cities with clean air and healthy food and an abundance of good um, transport options and a much more cohesive um, uh, communities. So you know, it's 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 all there. Um, and in in the conclusion to our book, we we summarize all all the main shifts from the sustainable mindset to a regenerative mindset and. And, and many of those are evolutions rather than, you know, um, polar opposites. And and when we set out that as a table, we we you know, we acknowledged that um, that looks pretty daunting, um, and and it amounts to a transformation of human consciousness. And and I actually think that is what it is going to require for us to rise to the planetary emergency, a transformation of human consciousness. But it, you know, if that if that feels daunting, then then just look at the prize that's on offer you know we we could become the the first generation that witnesses the great return the return of of uh, flora and fauna to our forests the, re the return of salmon runs to our river and a rewilding of the human spirit we could create cities with a fantastic quality of life with uh, clean air and fresh food and more uh, cohesive communities all of that is within our reach but we're only going to do it if if we look at the, the, the more strategic shifts, shifting paradigms, we, I don't think we're going to get there by just talking about um, zero carbon and, and, and so on. We need to, to really rethink what it means to be human, actually, and, and significantly move on from seeing ourselves as consumers. I mean, I think in, in, in just five years from now, I think we'll regard it as insane that we ever thought of ourselves as consumers. I mean, what an absurd way to define ourselves. We're citizens. And we can be citizen activists if, if we want. And increasingly, we need to see ourselves as planetary citizens. And there's a key difference there. You know, if you think of yourself as a consumer, you tend to limit your agency. And as an architect, as a consumer, you might just take all the assumptions as the starting point and then just look at how you might specify materials uh, so that you use less energy or less uh, physical resource and so on. But actually, we need to start asking much more challenging questions you know do we need a, a building in the first place or a question like you know what is what is my long-term purpose how would i like to be remembered and and how how can i uh, engage other people in that kind of thinking to to really uh, raise the the level of ambition wonderful inspiring words um and and if if planetary citizens evolve further you know do you ever think about where this could go in terms of leaving our planet and um you know traversing the, the solar system or the universe and how we might live uh, i do um but for me this is this is this is quite a knotty one really because yeah for me Astrophysics and astrobiology are fascinating subjects and, and well worth pursuing to expand the, the sphere of human knowledge. And I, for one, I'm really looking forward to seeing what is found on Europa uh, when the probe um, gets there. 
because um, you know, it may well have forms of life on it. But I see I see those subjects as as really quite different to ideas of inhabiting Mars or setting up space colonies. And I'm going to get quite critical here because I, given the urgency of our planetary emergency, I think those ideas are an absurd distraction from from what we really need to be doing. The, you know, the reality is that it's insanely expensive to launch things into space. So for the foreseeable future, inhabiting Mars or space colonies is only going to be an option available to the super rich. And also, you know, why would anyone want to go to Mars? The, the quality of life would be dismal in just about every respect. <laughs> and I think we'll look back on 2021 with absolute disbelief. Yeah, with wildfires on every continent, hundreds of thousands of people dying from the impacts of climate change, millions dying from a pandemic, over a billion undernourished. And in the midst of all that, a small number of overprivileged white guys thought the most relevant thing they could do was to launch dicks into space. You know, it's beyond parody. But um, I mean, coming back, coming off my soapbox now and returning to the book, <laughs> it's perhaps more important to, to analyze the worldview that leads to this kind of behavior. And in many ways, I think that is a, a kind of ultimate manifestation of dualism. You know, the idea that humans are separate from nature and that we can dominate nature and plunder it for resources. And when we've exhausted that, move on to a, a, a new planet. And I, I think that kind of dualism will take us in, in a very dystopian direction. And, and, you know, Jeremy Lent argues in his book that we're now at a kind of bifurcation point. You know, we could continue with techno-utopian fantasy that so many in Sil Silicon Valley seem to subscribe to. Um, and, you know, following Raymond Kurzweil's idea that our destiny as humans is, is to transcend biology. Well, you know, if you look at where that could lead, it could lead to a very divided society in, in which a tiny number of rich people uh, are engaged in life extending technologies and gene editing and so much so they've effectively become a different species while the rest of humanity is literally left to fight over a trashed biosphere and i think it's so much more appealing to chart a, a different course for humanity to overcome our dualism our separation from nature pursue holistic ends um, acknowledge that the the only uh, reasonable future is one based on justice so an ecological civilization in, in which we can all live a good quality of life and, and we can increasingly inhabit that role i mentioned as a, a new role as humans as co-enablers of the flourishing of all life for all time yes 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 um i think now is the time for us to you know to to finish with a rallying cry i'd like to I'd like to say a few words to our creative planetary citizens. I think that what's really stood out from our conversation is that there is a lot more at play than seemingly, you know, you can, you can think within our individual bubbles of our companies or our communities. And I would ask that all creatives start to create from a place other than their mind, you know, really start to tune in to the feelings, the synchronicities, the energies around them, and really create from a place of, of true inspiration that, that is nature and existence. Really immerse yourself in experience and what it is to be a human in this moment and be very present at this tipping point of humanity and create the world in which we wish to live. Mm. Yeah, well, that's that's a pretty good rallying cry, uh, and uh, yeah, I'd I, I would reiterate a lot of that, and I think it, it's really important that that creatives uh, strive to maximise their agency at, at all times. I liked what Paolo Antonelli said about uh, her hope would 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 be that um, designers and creatives uh, could eventually be seen as um, the, the way that philosophers are seen in France. Um, and and there is, there's no doubt, there is a, a really um, engaging and exciting role for 
designers in, in the age we're, we're entering because we're going to need to collaborate and, and use creative thinking more than ever before. And, and design doesn't just have to be about making certain consumer items more appealing. There's a much deeper uh, relevance to, to our work there. And I think it, it increasingly, we do need to challenge some of those starting assumptions and 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 look at the the sort of deeper potential of any particular project. And we think we need to really think long term. You know, we need to just bear in mind that our kids for sure are going to ask us in 10, 20 years' time, Mum, Dad, what did you do when you knew? And that's a line from the Drew Dellinger poem and i find that a, a really inspiring one because i i i'm kind of preparing myself for that I'm, I'm sure that my kids will ask me and i want to be able to look them in the eye and say yes i did everything i could we didn't manage to prevent all the bad stuff happening we've got a kind of thousand year cleanup operation ahead of us but we did at least turn the tide we made that shift from sustainable to regenerative. We started creating a fairer society. We laid the foundations for an ecological civilization. I'm sorry I couldn't do more, but I really believe I did everything I could. Michael, thank you so much for your inspiring words and work and all you do. Thank you. It's been fascinating to talk to you today. Thanks for involving me. It's been a real pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. This is Endless Vital Activity. Conversations to inspire radical action.